How's it going, everybody? Aloha and welcome back to the Brick House for another edition of Bose Football Final here at KHON2.com. And everywhere you download podcasts, I'm your host, Rob DeMello. Joining me, we got former University of Hawaii player and coach Rich Miano. We got former Rainbow Warrior offensive lineman RJ Hollis. And guys, the Rainbow Warrior football team made history on Saturday night, opening the gates to the Clarence T.C. Ching Athletics Complex with a 49-35 victory over Portland State, improving to 1-1 one and one on the season. Obviously, a lot to talk about in this game. The big takeaway is that the Bows get their first win of 2021, and they get their first win on campus in their very first attempt in the 112-year history of this program. But first things first, Rich, you were there calling the game on Spectrum Sports. Your biggest takeaway, when you drove out of that stadium on Saturday night, what was the biggest takeaway from this UH football victory? That Hawaii football has the potential that RJ and I and yourself always talk about. There is a plethora of skilled players. The offensive line can be uh, understand protection better. They, they came off the ball better. They, uh, I thought the defense played well. Um, there's still some moments with the special teams that you just ask yourself, um, they're fixable. Um, but this is a team that I think the litmus test that the barometer will be against a team like Oregon state. Hawaii was a superior football team. They showed it in the first half, a little disappointing in the second half, you know, taking the foot off, uh, the gas, making, uh, some mental mistakes, making some physical mistakes, but this is a football team that can contend for a mountain West championship. If they play football like we know they can play it. RJ Hollis, you weren't able to join us on the Spectrum Sports broadcast on Saturday, but you did watch the game. And when you look at a win is a win is a win, what do you take away from the Bows victory over Portland State? Uh, biggest takeaway, I'm going to have to piggyback right off of what Rich said. This is a championship caliber team. They got more than enough pieces loaded like a baked potato. Like I said last week, six different Rainbow Warriors finding the end zone. And this is a very talented team when they want to be and when they're playing mistake free football. Now, on the other end of that coin, when they're making some of the mistakes that they made last night, Games can be disastrous. Portland State almost made the inaugural TC Ching game an upset in the second half. So there's definitely two sides of this story. Uh, a win is a win, but there is a lot of coaching and a lot of fixable and teachable moments I think can be taken out of these four quarters of film. Yeah, and let's talk about that. Four quarters of film and what you saw was the University of Hawaii football team storm out of the gates taking a 28-0 lead in the first quarter. They went up 35-7 at halftime. And, and when you entered the third quarter, you kind of felt like, okay, you, you could see where this game was headed and this was going to be a celebratory night at the Clarence T.C. Ching Athletics Complex. But Portland State goes 21-7 in the third quarter and turns this into a ball game where it was a two-possession game and Portland State had the ball. And uh, if there were fans... In the venue, which, of course, they were not allowed because of COVID-19 regulations 
in the state and in the city and county of Honolulu at this time, uh, you would imagine that there would have been a lot of people squeezing uh, of what is going on here. Uh, but ultimately, the Rainbow Warriors able to break away. Dede Hunter had a 59-yard touchdown that really sealed the deal in this game en route to a 49-35 victory. So let's talk about that feeling of how do you look at this game where you, you saw this University of Hawaii football team play probably the best you've ever seen them play. And, and, and you can notch that up to this is the first time we've ever seen a Todd Graham led football team play under weight class, right? Because you've seen them play UCLA. That's, that's fighting above weight class. You've seen them play a Mountain West schedule and then Houston in the bowl game. Those are comparable teams. That's, that's fighting at your weight class. This is the first time that the Rainbow Warriors have had the opportunity to face an FCS opponent. And so you saw them come out fast and physical and strong and take that big lead. And what do you attribute the collapse in the second half, Rich, uh, to why did that happen? And what can the University of Hawaii learn from that? Well, I mean, complacency comes to mind and physical superiority comes to mind. I mean, it was such a blowout, you know, in that first half. And, and you saw, as RJ mentioned, a, a plethora of receivers, running backs have some of their best halves. I think this was the best first quarter uh, that I've seen from a Todd Graham uh, coach team offensively. And, and the defense did well um, as well. So, you know, you go into halftime and they didn't even go into halftime. They stayed on the field like a high school football team and kind of got that lecture before going into a smaller locker room than Aloha Stadium provides. So, you know, were they complacent? Were they overconfident? Did they think that they were a better football team? All of those things need to be corrected because you need to play 60 minutes of football and you're going to have mistakes because there's no such thing as the perfect football game. But when you have your best player drop three passes, take his eyes off the ball, concentrate, when you have him muff two punts, when you have him not field a kickoff, those are the type of things that as good as Calvin Turner is, he could be that much better. But you did see the Chevron Cordero we've talked about. You saw the emergence of Day Day Hunter, his game over 100, the century mark, two explosive athletic aesthetic runs. And you saw Justice Tuvai, and you saw, you know, um, it wasn't just a Darius Moore-Sal-led defense. I love the way Dewan Wagner played. I like Ote Baker. I like Quentin Big Dewan Matthews. Dewan Matthews, excuse yeah. me. Um, and, and I thought he had his best football game. And you look at Pita Tonga on that interception. There was a Kai Kanashiro strip when that could have been a one-score game, I thought might have been the biggest defensive play. But it was Dewan Matthews on the strip sack cover. It was Pita Tonga on the interception. They made plays defensively. So, again, it's almost a tale of two teams, a tale of two halves. And to me, the word that comes to mind, they were complacent. You know, and, and complacency, how much of it, RJ, and this isn't searching for excuses, and this isn't trying to look for, uh, you know, the, the the shining light in it, in it all. Um, but if there were fans in that venue – how much do you think that second half plays out differently? Because you have to imagine that, especially at the Clarence T.C. Ching Athletics Complex, where, where I was able to, to check out all the different vantage points, 
the fans are right on top of the field. And so you have to imagine that after big plays happen against the opposing team, so if Portland State takes a sack or they get a turnover, that crowd just gets louder and louder. And for you to be able to look over to your sideline and get the call in and talk in the huddle and be able to get everyone on the same page, that's something that doesn't exist, I feel like, if fans are there. It makes it that much more harder for an opposing team to, to come back from. Do you think that maybe that second half doesn't happen the way it does if you have 9,000 fans in green and white going bananas? I, 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 mean, I can almost put it to a certainty, Rob. I mean, I've played college football. Any news station that has ever recorded 2014 to 2016 Hawaii football, if R.J. Hollis is in your archives nine times out of ten, he's doing something for the fans or with the fans. Uh, I can even rewind back to playing Tennessee Martin, uh, the first home game we had in 2016 at Aloha Stadium, and they're on their final drive where they can actually come and win the game. This is an FCS team traveling from Tennessee, and they got us on the ropes. And there was a point where I had to grab a Powerade towel. I stood up on the bench and I started pumping up the crowd like this. And the stadium got so loud that I remember the hairs all through my body just standing up. And that exact play, Trayvon Henderson comes screaming off the edge, smashes the quarterback. Tennessee Martin has to give the ball up and we win the game. I do not feel like if I had that Powerade towel waved at empty bleachers, my hair would have stood up. I don't feel like if we played that game in front of an empty crowd, we would have even won. So, you know, not to make excuses, not to make anything seem like, oh, you got to put it purely on the fans. But football is a passionate game. Football is a game of excitement, of violence, of teamwork and camaraderie. You're talking about 11 grown men that you would not want to deal with in the street individually now moving at the same heartbeat at an inaugural tc ching gating that's a few steps out of the same locker room you practiced in i can even remember my sophomore year spring game where i was just so excited to hear people cheering from my normal locker room instead of taking a 30-minute drive to aloha stadium you hear them cheering from your normal locker room and that gave me the love for the fans and that gave me the excitement to get on the field at Aloha Stadium. So I, I definitely think having fans there is something that needs to be discussed. I watched college football all day yesterday, and there were loaded, unmasked crowds. Now, that's neither here nor there, but when UH is only asking for 9,000, 100% vaccinated with mask on, I, I feel like that's something that should be allowed because if you can't get safer than 100% vaccinated with masks, What's safer? And when you see a FCS program come in here and do what Portland State did in the second half, it has to worry you about what San Jose could do in the second half like that or Fresno State or Nevada or any of those comparable opponents of which you were speaking about earlier, Rob. If a second half with no fans happens against teams like that, then chances are this is much more a loss than it is a win. Yeah, and we have a lot more to talk about in regards to the Clarence T.C. Ching Athletics Complex. But let's go over some of the numbers first. The University of Hawaii offense posted 573 yards of total offense. That's the most uh, posted in the Todd Graham era uh, and, and also the 49 points, the most scored by the Rainbow Warriors since Todd Graham took over as the head coach at the start of the 2020 season. 
Shevin Cordero goes 18 to 25, 305 yards passing, three touchdowns and an interception. He also added rushing yards, what we're used to seeing out of Shevin Cordero, extending some of those drives. He had 66 total yards rushing at about four yards per carry. And then you look at the rest of the rushing attack, which went for 268 yards total, which of course is a season high after being held to under 30 yards in a loss at UCLA two weeks ago at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena. Dede Hunter, who we mentioned, had the 59-yard game-breaking touchdown uh, to, to put this one away. He had 128 yards rushing on 16 carries. Dedrick Parson had two touchdowns. He had 11 carries for 38 yards. Calvin Turner Jr., three carries for 36 yards and a touchdown. And that touchdown was incredible. And that segues us to talk a little bit about Calvin Turner Jr. Because, Rich Miano, you had mentioned it, that the mistakes that he made, the drop passes, the, the mistakes in the return game where one of his muffed kickoff returns gets returned for a touchdown by Portland State. And that really swung that game big time in the second half. And, and so when you look at what Calvin Turner Jr. was able to do and have one of the most incredible plays we've seen in a long time that is going to be shown on his highlight reel for the rest of time. Uh, and then he goes for over 100 yards of all purpose. He does... Um, make an impact as a receiver, as a running back, as a return man in a positive way. But then he has probably his worst game of his UH career when you put it all together because of the mistakes that he made. What does that say about Calvin Turner Jr. that you could walk away on Saturday night and say, man, Calvin Turner Jr. just didn't have it uh, on this evening yet. He was probably the most dynamic guy in the field and still got his touchdown and still went over 100 purpose yards. What does that say about number seven, Rich? Well, you know, he is the best football player on the field almost on a regular basis. And for him to have those mistakes and then for them to still win, it's a one-off. It's an anomaly. It's something that you probably won't see the rest of his career. He's too good of a football player. I've watched him field punts. And again, I don't know how much they practice in the evenings with the lights. I don't know how much, you know, he's never returned a punt in a game where there's, you know, 10 guys breathing down your neck and the trajectory of the ball is something that is uh, one of the most difficult things athletically to do in the, in a game of football. But, he will learn from this. He will continue to make highlight type plays. He will continue to demand that every defensive coordinator either doubles him or is responsible for whatever he does. Even in the Wildcat, when they stopped him short of the first down, that didn't happen last year. Uh, Calvin Turner is going to continue to be a human highlight reel, but at the same time, he's, he's the, nothing in football is perfect. He had maybe his worst game as a warrior, but yet he still was impactful to win this football game. So I, I think we have to re realize that this for University of Hawaii to be successful, it's more than Calvin Turner. But we are blessed to witness the incredible, amazing athleticism. And I'm not so sure that his eyes are not going upfield because he's a next level player and he's trying to make the next person miss. He just got to secure those catches. He's got to get the football in his hands. And I thought the offense, Bo Graham, in terms of trying to get 30 touches, they did continue to feed Calvin Turner the ball. And just because he makes a mistake, don't quit on that. RJ, when you look at some of the struggles that Calvin Turner Jr. had on Saturday night in that win over Portland State, how much of it 
do you think is pressing, right? We see it in the NBA a lot, right? Where there's a superstar player and they feel like they need to take matters into their own hand. They need to control the ball late in a game and they need to be the one to make things happen. Do you feel like that maybe that's what you were watching uh, when you saw this game unfold and, and some of the decisions that he made and, and some of the uncharacteristic errors that he had is, is that he was trying too hard uh, to to put another play on that highlight reel and 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 wanting to uh, take Portland State's comeback or, or anything that they were trying to accomplish to do out of consideration and saying it's on me to put this game away. A little, a little, I would say a little bit of it is that, Rob, but I, I'm going to be honest with you, especially being in the locker room only a few short years ago and kind of seeing how they started to play once they started to pull away. I, I think they started to smell blood in the water. I, I'm not going to lie. I, I think that once so many people started to find the end zone and, you know, they kind of started to get their flow, Joe, I think everybody was just thinking, if I touch the ball, it's a house call. Nothing less is even going to be acceptable. So, you know, a lot of times DBs kind of have this more so than receivers, but at the same time, it's a, a commonality where they call it seeing the end zone before catching the ball. And I know Rich has probably heard that a couple of times, you know, where a DB has a pick six, but he's focused more on the six than the pick. So I, I think that it, it was a little bit of, of them getting somewhat complacent, but more than anything, smelling blood in the water. These guys are talented and coming out 28 to zero the way they did. There's no question. UH was the better team out there. But when you seen Calvin Turner start to get the ball after he had dealt with a couple of these defenders, he started hopping, you know, slow hopping back and forth, holding the ball. Wait, let me see if I can uh, maybe make him do this. Oh, miss that way. Yeah, he's going to miss two. And then I'm going to take it all the way to the end zone. When, when you're when you're that electric, when you're that talented, and for me, I'd have to rewind back to, like, you know, third grade PE. <laughs> I used to be good way back then getting picked first and everything. But when you get the football and you start hopping left to right, like, oh, let me make a couple people miss. There was a few plays where he, he just pops up out of nowhere. Like, you think he's sacked or you think he's hitting the backfield, and he's made three or four guys miss. When you have that type of confidence, I think it does cause you to get – a little bit out of the element of fundamentals. And I think that's what you started to see. Um, I, I think a lot of players were smelling blood in the water. Even Solo Turner was loving those little short, you know, kickoffs where they kept giving it to him because normally he blocks, but hey, he's a playmaker too. So every time he got the ball, he was even thinking in zone. Another Turner with the burners. So, you know, I think they they started to, to fill themselves and there's nothing wrong with that. They were obviously the more talented team. They are loaded like the baked potato. And whether you get it with steak on top, whether you get it with a little chicken, with, with some ribs on it, it don't matter. It's still a loaded baked potato. And everybody was trying to eat yesterday. I think Calvin Turner saw a 300-yard game in his future and kind of got more caught up in that than just the basics of securing a punt, the basics of securing a catch. I mean, what's six yards in a 300-yard game? So I, I think uh, UH, and not to their fault in football, especially with no fans, you got to bring out your own energy. You got to do your own thing. I, I could see that confidence, that swagger, that, hey, I'm about to take it to the end zone every time I can. When they Google the first game that ever happened at T.C. Ching, Calvin Turner scored 97 touchdowns. <laughs> that's what he's thinking because he has to because there's no fans there. Hey, more power to you. But at the end of the day, you got to have fundamentals. You can have fun, but you got to have the dementals or 
it's going to be a, a lot of drop passes, going to be a lot of stuff that is unbecoming of somebody we know is a next-level player, somebody we know is top Mountain West offensive performer caliber, period. Hence why they got him returning punts, returning kicks, all this stuff. So uh, I think they just got to calm it down, let the game kind of open itself up naturally. Don't, you know – don't go for the throw. We know how good you are, but let the game come to you. Don't try and uh, force 9,700 yards down Portland State's throat. <laughs> and speaking of history being made, and when you look back at, at the opening night at the Ching Complex, uh, the, the answer to the trivia question is Nick Mardner. That is who scored the very first touchdown in Clarence T.C. Ching Athletic Complex history where he caught that touchdown from Shevin Cordero to get the scoring started, which again jump started a 28-0 first quarter run. Real quickly, Rich, uh, because you talked about Shevin Cordero a couple of weeks ago and what you wanted to see out of him in this second year in the running gun offense. It, after spending a lifetime in the run and shoot and knowing that it's not going to happen overnight to where you become one with a brand new offense, especially one that is so as different as the run and shoot is with Shevin Cordero ran in his childhood through high school and then to start his collegiate career. When you look at 18 to 25, 305 yards passing, three touchdowns, uh, cool, calm and collected as always, footwork always on point. Uh, what did you see out of Shevin and what tells you that, OK, it, the Bo Graham run offense and Shevin Cordero could be a, a match made in heaven at some point? Well, first of all, I, I think it was a confidence builder, and I think uh, number 12 needed that. Uh, it's, it was a different type of competition, but when you look and break down the film, you're going to see zone beaters. You're going to see man beaters. You're going to see trajectory throws. He threw receivers open. The, the receivers understand how to throttle in certain windows and zones, the back shoulder throws, the extension of plays, the uh, – chunk yardage plays when he does run the ball and things and there was more quarterback designed runs which you need and I think that's because they have a competent backup this year 12 has to be involved in the quarterback powers in the read options in the RPOs if if you get him involved he's the second most dangerous guy with the ball in his hands and again I still believe because of the potential of this young man making all the throws making the right decisions that the conference MVP is a possibility, a next level player for Shevin Cordero, but he needed this confidence. He needed to have that swagger. He's becoming the commander. He's making players around him better. He's calling the protection. And this was uh, a game that you wish was his first game of the 2021 season against the one double a FCS opponent, and then maybe take on a uh, UCLA team because Number 12 is a football player, and we're blessed to be in his presence. And when you look at defensively, what the University of Hawaii football team was able to do, and obviously that early lead, 35-7 at halftime, a lot of it had to do with the defense and the control that they had on this football game. When you look at Justice Tavai, six tackles with a tackle for loss. Kai Kaneshiro with six tackles and a couple of pass breakups, which Rich, you talked about earlier, were very big in, in uh, securing this victory in that second half. DeWan Matthews, five tackles and a sack, two tackles for loss. This team as a whole had seven tackles for loss against the Vikings and, and nine pass breakups. And that's despite the, the defensive backs being left on an island uh, quite a few times in this game and, and getting beat for scores or getting beat for, for big third downs. And so, RJ, as a whole, when you look at this defense, uh, what do they walk away uh, having learned from this Portland State game? 
I think that they learned that they're talented. I think they kind of put forth the same uh, show that the offense did. Um, they got a lot of pieces that are very talented. And even if you think about, you know, some of the people that you mentioned that made a, a big contribution last night, these aren't necessarily the premier guys we were talking about coming in, you know, Darius Moisau or Corey Bethley or Quentin Frazier, a lot of these guys, Cortez Davis, that were making big plays coming in. Now you're seeing that even guys like Kai Kaneshiro can step up and make plays. Guys like Dewan Matthews can step up and make huge plays because let's not forget, if he doesn't have that goal line force fumble, this is a one-score game. This isn't the two-score game that it ended up being. If Dewan Matthews doesn't force the fumble and recover it, there is a one-score game, and now there's an even bigger potential for your first game to be a loss. Uh, you talk about Hugh Nelson, a, a new guy that got an interception. You know, so when you got the guys that you know can already ball for you, uh, Eugene Ford, um, Panay Pavihi, uh, Cortez Davis, but you see guys like Kai Kaneshiro, you see guys like Dewan Matthews stepping up. It, it does bode a little bit of confidence as to your depth, as to your rotation, and, and as to the players that you could put out on the field. Uh, but at the same time, there's also, you know, the big play concerns. That That is something that definitely has to be checked. Uh, the passing game, when you sacrifice, and you know, D, uh, I, I was an offensive guy, but you know, Rich can attest to this. When you sacrifice men on that blitz, you put them DBs on the island, those 50-50 balls are probably a, a best-case scenario for every quarterback that's going to take the field. So when, when you give up over 400 yards passing to a school like Portland State, it does make you wonder and worry about, you know, as you said, some of the more comparable teams that you're going to face or, or like you alluded to, Rob, when you come up to your weight class, uh, if you're giving up 400 yards, granted, they held Portland State to under 100 yards. That was, you know, a very good thing for them to take away as well. But some of those big plays, some of those 50-50 balls, a lot of their scores were set up by 50-50 balls. Some of the gash runs, not many of them happened. But these are the type of things that you're going to have to clean up if you want to get to that championship tech caliber team that I noticed locker rooms talking about. So at the end of the day, you know, with the critiques, with all of these things that come, you got to understand this is a team that knows they got to beat better teams than they beat last night. So at the end of the day, yes, a win is a win, but you got to put on your, your bifocals when you watch that film. And Rich, you can attest to this. You got to be extremely honest with yourself when you're watching film. If you want to try and fluff things up, like you just went out and played a perfect game only because you won. That's going to come back to bite you when you play bigger teams down the line. So the defense has a lot of pieces. Uh, they, they have a lot of pieces we know about. They have a lot of pieces that can show themselves. But at the same time, that continuity has to get a lot more solidified to where big game games like this one is not something that should happen. Because 28 to zero is kind of how it should have carried the whole game. But at the end of the day, the second half, Portland State figured them out, and they just aired it out. And that's something that you can't have going down the line, especially if you want to talk uh, Mountain West title contention. And, Rich, uh, real quickly uh, about this defense and about the defensive back specifically, because I know when you watch a football game, you have a very close eye on what's going on in the secondary. I'm going to give you a few numbers. And although numbers don't explain everything and, and really every statistic has a reason behind to how that number ended up being a statistic, but I'm going to, uh, I'm going to throw some numbers at you. 400 yards passing by Portland State, two interceptions by the University of Hawaii, nine pass breakups, for the University of Hawaii. 
of those three things, which one was the most important to you and which one stays with this team the longest? Is it that they got nine pass breakups, which means that they were very active in that role? Uh, is it that they got two interceptions, which uh, definitely is something that we've been looking for in, in forcing turnovers? Or is it that they gave up 400 yards passing to a, a quarterback that was able to extend plays? Well, and, and I hate to have to choose one. And RJ kind of alluded to the fact that statistics can be an anomaly in terms of they fell behind early. They threw the ball more often. This quarterback had some moxie to him, extended plays and made some phenomenal throws that were, if they weren't completed, they were barely out of bounds. And those were some KG receivers, some talented receivers. So I, I like the fact that Hugh Nelson had the interception. I like Pita Tongas. Obviously, I thought that was a big play early in this football game. But the nine, when you talk about pass breakups, I mean, Cortez Davis on fourth down made a huge play in the back of the end zone. Kai Kanashiro stripping the receiver, breaking that ball up. Uh, I, that could have been a one-score game because they're marching in the red zone. So I like the fact that I thought for the most part, even on some of the completions, the coverage was not bad. And um, there's a there's a bunch of these um, defensive backs we're seeing from the Eugene Fords, the Kai Kanashiros, to the Hugh Nelsons, to the Corey Bethleys, to the Cortez Davises, and Cameron Lockridge, that they have the ability to play some good coverages. They are going to dial it up with some really incredible uh, zero coverage uh double a gap blitzes they're coming off there's a lot of pressure when you do do that and the opponent max protects or picks it up you are susceptible some to some big plays but i'll take an occasional big play if they're playing aggressive i don't like the bend but don't break philosophy on defense i like the attack style turn the ball over give it back to your offense and and i think this secondary made some strides this past weekend all right. Well, definitely uh, we have a lot to talk about moving forward to the Oregon State game, which will be this weekend in Corvallis, a second opportunity to face off against a Pac-12 opponent. But before we close the book on Portland State, let's go to the Bose football final mailbox. As always, you can send in your questions or comments to me on social media. That's at Rob DeMello on both Instagram and Facebook, at Rob DeMello, K-H-O-N on Twitter and every Following every University of Hawaii football game, I'll put it on my Instagram stories, uh, just a one button uh, sticker uh, that you'll be able to send your questions or comments in to make it easier on you. So be sure to check that out as well. And so uh, we got a few questions that, that I want to get to. And the first one comes from Gravewalker, who asked, and I'm going to I'm going to have Rich answer this one. Um, uh, and RJ, if you want to jump in after. But the question is, how concerned should the special teams be after all those miscues? Yeah, it's a cliche, but the special teams have not been special. And that's the head coach who runs the special teams. And I'm sure he gets a lot of help by his assistants. But looking at the UCLA game, you got a block punt for the first time in 158 games. You got a punter that puts his knee on the ground who's new to that position, so to speak. This game, you're talking about a muffed, two muff punts, a kickoff return that ended up being a touchdown for the opponent, an onside kick. So um, those are plays that against a better opponent are going to cause you to lose those two or three games a year that special teams can be accounted for. So are they fixable? Hell yeah. Will Calvin Turner be one of the best punt returners in this league? He already is. Will he be the best kickoff return guy in this league? Most likely. Uh, so Corey Bethley mishandled that onside kick. 
some of these things of focus or concentration, some of the things that RJ was talking about earlier, you're trying to make things happen instead of really focusing on your fundamentals. But I, I do believe they're fixable. I do believe Kyler Halverson is a weapon in terms of hidden yardage as a kickoff specialist. I think Shipley's done fairly well with extra points and field goals. So I do think they have the right pieces to be a good special team. The kickoff coverage team tackles inside the 20-yard line. So there are the ingredients to be special, but they have not been special the first two games. All right, Rich, as right before you started talking, I got a text message from you letting me know that you got to get out of here. So, uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll so it's just it. my battery's going to roll in a second. So if you have to, you know. Yeah, yeah. So wait, well, I'll tell you what, uh, you, you can stay as long as you want. As soon as your battery dies and you can't be with us anymore, it's peace out. All Appreciate right. It. So, so just, just so you, all you guys understand, if, if Rich disappears at some point, uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's the battery that, that battery. they got on him. Um, battery bills. <laughs> uh, but RJ, uh, the next question comes from Junior and, and, and what Junior is, is saying here. And I'm, I have to um, paraphrase uh, because I can't read the question exactly how it's written. Uh, but he's pretty much saying that he doesn't understand why people are so happy with this victory, barely beating Portland State is kind of the sense that he gets. And before I, I let you take over on that, uh, let me remind everybody as Rich Miano disappears from uh, <laughs> from our, our conversation here. Before I give you the floor, let me just remind everybody uh, of a few things. Number one it, it is a victory. Right. And you talked about the Tennessee Martin victory in 2016, where the Skyhawks almost came back and upset the Bows. Well, that 2016 season is one that a lot of Rainbow Warrior fans look back on as uh, a positive season. Right. A bowl game victory, a winning season. And um, so you always got to remember that how you got those wins don't matter once those weeks are completed. Once you move on a couple weeks away, a win is a win. The other thing that I keep in mind is the FCS put everybody on notice this past week, and especially in the Mountain West Conference where Eastern Washington upset UNLV at Allegiant Stadium. Yet South Dakota State going to Colorado State, brand new stadium, smash the Rams. All right. You have Montana beating Washington. You had Wyoming having to come back in order to get their victory over Montana State. And so every single year you see this happening and you see good teams lose to FCS opponents. And so anytime you get a victory, it's a victory. You, if, if you are a supporter of the Rainbow Warrior football team, any dub is a dub that you should celebrate. Now you can be critical of things and you can say that they need to fix this or they need to fix that, of course. But I mean – Thinking that a win should not be celebrated, it, that's blasphemy, right, RJ? I, I mean, yeah, you you kind of hit it on the head, Rob. And, you know, understanding both sides of the coin, some, some people just have a lot higher expectations than others. But the FCS was, uh, was making a, a fool of teams all week. So to not be one of those teams, you know, is it, something that UH has definitely – have to be appreciative of because they could have very easily been another person on that list of UNLVs of Washington's of Wyoming's that had to battle and, and loss to these FCS teams, especially being that it was an inaugural TC Ching game. So obviously there is a lot to clean up there. There's a lot that you could work on. And when you look at the fact that this was an FCS team and you're coming to play mountain West opponents, you're, you're going to have to be better in, in order to win games. So I get that part, but you do celebrate any and every win you can get your hands on. 
the sport of football isn't set up with a lot of games. You only get one a week. So if the, the one contest you get a week, you can win that one. Like you said, at the end of the day, we're going to take every win we can get because there's going to be a whole seven days before we even get another opportunity to play a game. So uh, I understand where Junior might be coming from as far as his expectations for a win. But at the same time, you do accept the win, especially in the sport of football, anywhere you can get it. If you don't believe me, you can even ask Oklahoma, who did not lose yesterday, but came down to the wire with Tulane at home. So football is a sport where Uncle Mo is fickle and the best team is going to win no matter what. So take any victory that you can get and being upset that you won is very counterintuitive, in my opinion. You know, it's funny is if I didn't know that that my father has no idea how to put an app on his phone. My, my dad's name is Junior. And that sounds like something he would say. And so I would have thought I'm like, did my dad finally make his way on the Instagram, but it's not him. Um, but uh, but, you know, he was checking up. Right? I was like, man, this sounds like somebody I know. But uh, the last uh, question here on Bo's football final, and and I I think I'll take it, but I, but I'll have I'll give you an opportunity to say what you want to say from from your vantage point. Um, but Aloha Maid is asking what the atmosphere was like at Clarence T.C. Ching Athletics Complex. And so for me to be able to be there, obviously, RJ, we talked about that you weren't able to join us this weekend. Um, but for me, it, it, it's really interesting because I live in the area. I live in Mo'ili'ili. And so that whole day, all I was thinking about as I was driving my daughter to volleyball and as I was coming back home and then as I was driving to the stadium, um, just thinking to myself, like, what what would this place be like? What would this town be like right now if this was a UH football home game day and driving past Puck's Alley and where there's Raising Canes and just a block away is Old Stadium Park and just imagining that I imagine people would be taking advantage of, of this right now and they would be making this uh, kind of a game day atmosphere for this little community and uh, and so that that excited me and that got me thinking about what's possible and also bummed me out right um, that that we can't see that right now but I'll tell you this is that being there with no fans, I can only imagine what it's like or what it's going to be like when there are fans, because there is a, 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 some elements of that game day experience that definitely provide a much increased college football feel than than Aloha Stadium provides. And Aloha Stadium, a huge venue and really made for NFL football, right? For the Pro Bowl. And when you look at 50,000 seat capacity, name another mid-major program that has a 50,000 seat stadium, right? And and what Clarence T.C. Ching Athletics Complex provided, and the thing you got to keep in mind is that only 9,000 capacity right now. And next season, they're looking at 15,000. And we'll see how long this needs to be the home field. And, and for all intents and purposes, could be their home field moving forward. Who knows what's going to happen with the Aloha Stadium. Um, but that thing can grow and grow and grow is that, uh, number one, the fans are right on top of the action, especially in the end zones. And one of the end zones is designated for the students. And so that is going to be crazy once you get people packed in there. Number two, the lighting is phenomenal. I mean, looking at that field, you feel like you're, you're at a museum when you're looking at the turf and the players on the turf because the lighting is so good. And, and that a lot of that might have to do with the LEDs and then the fact that 
the Manoa Valley is behind you. And so it's, it's a dark and light meeting each other and it's just making everything pop. This, the, the turf looks great. Um, it's loud. The, the sound system is phenomenal, already better than Aloha Stadium. But then you're in the valley and, and, and you don't have much around. And, and so that, that sound carries. And so uh, I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't be happier than I was to, uh, to have witnessed that game being played on campus. There's a special feel to it when you just see the Stan Sheriff Center in the background and then you walk over to the other end zone and the other vantage point and you're seeing Diamond Head and then you're looking behind you and you see the Green Monoa Valley. Uh, it, it, it's it's pretty cool, man. And um, and and I just cannot wait. Yeah, uh, On Saturday night, I said on Spectrum Sports that it, it's like that post-game or that, that postcard feel where I want to send to everybody, uh, wish you were here right? Uh, because it, it, it was so cool uh, to be there. And, and I'm hoping that as time goes on, uh, Mayor Rick Bland, you already explained that it is a fluid situation and that who knows, maybe by San Jose State in some form, fans can be there. And maybe as the season goes on, you can increase. And as you mentioned a handful of times, that the university's plan of vaccinated with masks, I mean, there's not much more you can do. I mean, you can't you can't do more than that in, in this day and age of COVID-19 regulations. And so um, this program deserves it. The players deserve it. Um, and if safety allows it, then definitely uh, it, it's going to be an experience that that I feel like I'm not overselling. I feel like every fan that walks into that complex will walk away feeling the same way that, yeah, it's a humble venue. Yeah, it's smaller than anything you've probably ever been in in a college football atmosphere, but it's special. And it's something that's uniquely Hawaii. Uh, RJ, you were able to watch the game from afar. What were your thoughts on the Clarence T.C. Ching Athletics Complex? Um, well, uh, really, off what you said, Rob, you know, I, I've been down there. I've seen it myself. It's beautiful. It, it, it's awesome. Um, as far as the game itself, though, I, I'm – one not being there was already kind of, you know, harder for me. Uh, I wouldn't have been able to be there anyway. But at the end of the day, it was, you know, kind of hard for me not to be there. But watching the game as it was, what was truly heartbreaking for me. And there's only one reason I'm going to say this. Saturday morning, I woke up approximately 730, caught the fourth quarter of the uh, Penn State Wisconsin game a game in which St. Louis uh, linebacker Nick Herbert balled out, by the way. Great game that went all the way down to the end. That crowd was loaded. They did the jump around, and it was 80,000 strong with no mask. Then I turned on another game. That was a loaded crowd with no mask. Then I turned on another LSU-UCLA, uh, Oklahoma-Tulane, Alabama-Miami. I spent all day watching college football. Texas and Louisiana, all of these crowds were loaded and people were not masked. And you're talking about 30, 40, 50, 60,000 people. And for the final game of, of my full Saturday, which was full because as we know, UH kicks off 6 p.m. Full Saturday of watching football to, to turn on Spectrum and see the home crowd, the TC Ching Stadium, empty. To see the silence, to see the empty parking structure. And I, I'm gonna just tell you, Rob, you're not overselling anything. I was an econ major that wrote a city planning paper on putting football in Mo'ili'ili. And I've already, 
envisioned it long before they said Aloha Stadium was going to be shut down. That game day atmosphere is something that people will never forget. Like you said, it's in the Valley. The roar of those crowds is going to echo. People in the residential areas are going to feel the passion of UH. And the fact that that could not happen Saturday to me, honestly, it, it was it was heartbreaking. It's the first game ever. So no matter what, when T.C. Ching is shown as a, a stadium, when you go back and you look up history, if UH does get to a point of, of national contention, of, of great standing one day, Whenever the first TC Ching game is shown, it will be in an empty stadium at a time where UH went out of its way to make the safest possible crowd in America, period. It wouldn't have been close. It would not have been close. Only 9,000 people at TC Ching Stadium, 100% vaccinated and masked outdoors. The University of Hawaii at Manoa would have not only had the smallest Division one crowd, but they would have simultaneously had the safest and the most responsible crowd in all of America that was not allowed to happen. And to me, that's a heartbreaker. To me, that's how Portland State does come back and outscore you in the second half. To me, that is how the game where you come out with so much juice on your own, you could get up 28 to zero. You can no longer carry it when the only people you can depend on for energy are the people on that sideline. Nobody else has had to deal with that in the country. If UCLA had to play in an empty stadium, I do not feel like they beat LSU. So I, I'm definitely understanding that there's protocol on this, that there's, you know, safety hazards and, and all of that. But for UH to ask for 9,000 vaccinated and mass people to be allowed outside to cheer on the home team, but the final day in August, there were 16,000 visitors that came to Hawaii. I, I can't I can't put that together in my mind, Rob. Now, I know this Bose football final, and I'm not, you know, going to get too deep into everybody's opinions. Everybody's entitled to their own thing. But to see, and it's a government, it's government documented. 16,000 people came to the state of Hawaii. I spent all day Saturday watching full unmasked stadiums for UH to not be allowed that vision that me and you can see. And mind you, we're analysts. We see practice every day. We're there every day. We've been around this team for years and years at a personal and at an intimate level. For fans that can't get that type of access, for fans that haven't seen anything outside of Aloha Stadium, they can't even put this in their minds. But me and you can. If that was allowed to at least even be halfway filled yesterday, I think the first game instead of it being a, a almost nail biter off the statues mistakes might be 63 to zero 63 to 14 because now when Calvin Turner makes that amazing crazy play that he did you would be able to hear the fans from there to Walmart to Hawaii Kai all the way even in Waikiki if you're close enough to the Aloha so I, I know it's something that can be done I'm not losing hope I'm not losing faith but Rob you've seen it you were there you can envision it. You've been around this team for a long time. The energy that can be brought to Mo'ili Ely, the resurgence of the, the part of town, period, that can have money, resources, and everything thrown into it to make it something safe. UH can finally put itself in a position where you can start using your facilities to recruit, where you can start attracting some local competition and recruiting by bringing them to the games and letting them be one of the people with access. Coming into an empty Aloha Stadium or coming into Mo'ili Ely where it takes you a police escort and security to guide you onto the field as a recruit, who's going to turn that down? 
I don't think many. So it, it's it's something that broke my heart saying it yesterday. But if it can be done, Rob, I am right there with you. I think this is a game day atmosphere that could literally compete with anybody that UH is going to have on their schedule. Mine is UCLA. Anybody that is in the Mountain West, anybody that UH would have to see, their game day would be able to compete with anybody else's. And that just changes the old outlook of a football program. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, and I'll say, uh, you know, I, I, I've been uh, to USC and UCLA games and, you know, and, and much like Aloha Stadium, that's an NFL feel. Right. And right. and I think that's the charm that the Clarence T.C. Ching Athletics Complex can provide that, you know, it's like when you see your favorite band, you know, if you go and see them at a sold out NFL football venue, but then you saw, saw them at this hole in the wall bar that, you know, is much more yeah. intimate. There, there's a different feel to it. And I think that if the university and its fans take ownership, right. And, and even the players, right. Where you can say like, Hey, you're probably going to face teams that, that are going to come in and they're going to talk smack about like, Oh my God, this is your stadium. It's so small, 9,000 or, you know, take ownership of it. Right. So that when you win that game, you say, well, you just got beat by a team with a 9,000 exactly. team, right? And then for the fans to take ownership of like, hey, this is this is a un- unique place. This isn't this isn't Wembley Stadium, uh, you know, concert. This is Waikiki Shell, right? This is this yeah. is something that that we that we own and that we can create as far as what that Saturday feels like. And so um, I'm excited to see what happens once people get in. And as I said. Don't hold out hope. We'll see what happens. Um, the one thing to keep in mind, and this goes for everything in life, right? And, and I, I don't want to preach. I, I don't want to uh, um, preach, Mother to, Rob. To, to uh, you know, kind of put anything on anyone because that's not what I'm saying. But it's if you don't like something, you got to do something to change it, right? And in this case, is we need to get those numbers down. We need to make responsible decisions to make sure that uh, the, the COVID-19 pandemic doesn't continue to grow here in the state of Hawaii. And the one thing that I'll say about the other places that are, that are having these packed stadiums, the, the one thing, the, the beautiful thing about living in Hawaii is that Hawaii is a unique place. And one of the unique things about it is that it's an island state. And so if you're in a, on the continental U.S. and your numbers are going up and your hospitals are filling, well, you're just a few miles away from the next state. You're just a helicopter ride away from another state where you can go to the hospital. You don't have that in the state of Hawaii. And I think that's something that a lot of people got to remember when they talk about hospital numbers and hospital beds available is that, that that's all we got, right? That's all we have. And is, so if you can't, go to a hospital because you got into a car accident or because you have some kind of other illness because COVID-19 patients are filling up hospitals. Um, for anyone who doesn't understand why that's so important, try to keep that in mind it is that that that's the main reason why is because that's all we have here in the state of Hawaii. And, and you're very far away from getting saved by another state or getting saved by another country in, in regards to taking care of people. So um, keep that in mind and let's hold out hope and let's have our fingers crossed that we can we can uh, get fans into the Clarence T.C. Ching Athletics Complex. All right. Well, thanks a lot, everybody, for sending in questions and comments to the Bose Football Final Mailbox. Uh, one last thing before we go. Oregon State next on the schedule for the University of Hawaii football team. A second chance at a Pac-12 opponent on the road as they go to Corvallis. The Beavers open their season with a loss to Purdue. Um, I'm going to ask you this, RJ. 
coming off of the UCLA game, that was a humbling experience for the University of Hawaii football team, who who's feeling good about themselves, right? With, with a bowl game victory, um, over 20 starters returning to this team. And then you got a, a handful of transfers that you thought was going to fill some of the voids that, that, that you needed to fill in the offseason to take the next step for the Rainbow Warrior football team. Then you get humbled 44 to 10. You jump out big against Portland State. Uh, 35-7 at halftime, 28 nothing in the first quarter, but then end up by winning by only 14 points. Do you think that it was the best case scenario in a way? And, and of course, this is digging a little bit, but for them, and speaking of them, is the Rainbow Warrior football team, for them to get this victory over Portland State and then go to Oregon State with the boost, with the swagger of, okay, we're one and one, we got this win. UCLA knocked off LSU. So that proved that UCLA is a pretty darn good football team. But then at the same time, for the Vikings of Portland State to be able to humble them a little bit and say, hey, you're not on your way to a national championship right now. There's still a lot to work on. Do you feel that this was the best way possible for Hawaii to return to a Pac-12 road game? Yeah, definitely. I, I feel like you kind of hit it on the head there, Rob. Um I think UCLA beating LSU this weekend in the Rose Bowl almost gave a, a lot of players a pass. Now, I, I don't think this is something that the general public is doing or that every player is doing, but I do feel like uh, once UCLA beat LSU, it kind of, you know, null and voided the loss that Hawaii had because if we're just talking a general sense of college football, if you can knock off an SEC team, well, that should just put you in a whole nother world of football. That being said, to have the second half that they had against Portland State, I think, is the perfect storm because even though they took off and went up 28 to zero, which, as you mentioned, kind of gave them that that confidence they needed. And as I mentioned, kind of had some of them smelling blood in the water. Even Shevin was taking a lot more deep shots than, you know, he normally would. I, I think that second half kind of broke even. I, I think it was like getting into a fight with your little brother that's only two or three years younger than you versus the guy that's eight or nine years younger <laughs> than you know. At the end of the day, you still big brother, but now he getting his licks in. So it's a lot different when you just pummeling on somebody and when they start hitting back. So I think UH definitely left the field seeing that, okay, guys, we, we did win. We do have talent. We can win a lot of games, but there is a lot we have to clean up. And if you don't have you know, Portland State outscoring them in the second half, 28 to 14, almost 35 to 14, and making the game a lot closer than it is, then who knows? With the way UH was feeling in that first half, they might go down the line thinking, hey, we can just smoke everybody. You know, we got talent. We're loaded. We got it like that. But, you know, as you mentioned, Rob, I think it, it, it was very good timing for the humbleness to occur. At the end of the day, Losing to UCLA is something you more hung your head down than anything. Getting up 28 to zero, you stick your head up and start to, you know, put your chin back a little bit. But then that second half of Portland State is like, whoa, whoa, let's chill out. We still got to get the fundamentals. We're human, too, and there's nobody we should overlook. So going to face a Pac-12 team, even if they're not going to be as good as UCLA or not be as bad as Portland State, that should make no difference to the bow. So I think it's perfect that they you know were able to have a victory in such a humbling way to where now they can and make sure they can still analyze themselves and still know hey 
We got stuff we need to work on, but we are a good football team. We're not as bad as UCLA may have seemed like, and we're not as great as the first half of Portland State. So I think getting that even keel, getting that ability to be happy that you got to win, but knowing there's stuff you need to fix, I, I think that's a great position for the Bows to be in. Oregon State is still not conference. So however this game goes next week, it's going to be a good test of the talent that they have. It's going to be a good test on how they should project for the rest of the schedule. But that's still not a conference game. So whatever way that folds, you can still take these three games compile what you need to compile what works what doesn't what's good and what's not and use those three as a game plan to attack the mountain west schedule so i think it's a perfect situation big brother you had to fight you know you had to fight big brother the first game that's big brother they beat the sec team so we can't let, let's not kid ourselves and say ucla is not talented we know that then you fought little brother and even though you got your you know you was whooping on him at first but he got tired of that he started biting his lip and Bam, them hits is coming back. So now it's like, whoa, because next week you got to fight your cousin. And y'all the same age. Y'all about the same size, same weight, same everything. And now, hey, I can't go in, you know, thinking, okay, he big brother, but I can't go in thinking he little brother either. So I think, like you mentioned, Rob, it's a perfect mix of things. Having this team that's going to be almost even keel talent-wise, you know, offensively and defensively, and then going into Mountain West Conference, starting off with the defending Mountain West champs, I think it's a perfect uh, storm. I think next Saturday we'll kind of fill in those final bubbles we don't have as fans and analysts and give us an idea of what we're going to see going forward. As the old adage says, uh, you're never as good as you think you are. You're never as bad as you think you are. And exactly. the Rainbow Warrior football team will go up against Oregon State this Saturday in Corvallis kickoff is set for 5 p.m. Hawaii time, and it will be televised nationally on FS1, so an opportunity to make up for a national TV loss to UCLA. Well, stay with KHON2 on air and online as we will get you ready for that Oregon State game with coverage all week long leading up to and after that game is completed. For Rich Miano, for RJ Hollis, much mahalo for joining us here on Bose Football Final every Monday at KHON2.com and everywhere you download podcasts. We hope everyone has a safe and happy week. RJ, tell the people, aloha. Aloha. Aloha.